Welcome back to The Duck Stops Here, a podcast from the University of Oregon. I'm Michelle Joyce Fife, and today we're joined by a Portland-based artist and playwright, Dr. Phyllis Yes. She wrote and produced a play that was based on her experience caring for her elderly parents from afar. It resonated with audiences across the country and is about to be made into a movie starring Ed Asner. I was trying to take care of my elderly parents back in the Midwest. And I'd fly back and I'd take phone calls from time to time because they were getting sicker and more uh, forgetful and that kind of thing. And these women would say, well, what happened this week? And I would tell them, and sometimes they'd laugh because it's not their family. (laughs) Sometimes they would just smack their forehead in disbelief. Um, But they were interested. Dr. Yes is a name that she chose for herself after she earned her PhD in philosophy and art education from UO. She's an accomplished visual artist who's best known for her work feminizing masculine objects. She'll describe what that means in a minute, and you can check out the show notes for links to her art. My colleague, Associate Director of Development at UO, Aisha Benninghoven, will be conducting the interview. Their conversation will cover a wide range of topics, starting with how Dr. Yes chose her name. Thank you so much, Dr. Yes, for making time for us today. So please tell us the name story. Okay. So I was married to someone named Richardson. And um, every time, and I had so many students at Oregon State, and I'd sign Phyllis Richardson, R-I-C-H-A-R-D-S-O-N, long name. And I didn't like, so I I didn't want to use it anymore. And this was way back in the 70s, early 70s. And um, so I didn't particularly like my unmarried name, my birth name. And so I started thinking about alternatives. And I started to form a really big list, like I could be Philistine for an artist to be a Philistine, or I could be Philadelphia or philosophical, or, you know, all of those kinds of things. I even thought about being Dr. Strangelove, but then again, it's too long of a name. So I had an uh, artist named Miriam Shapiro be a guest uh, in Corvallis, and we drove up to Portland in a little tiny um, VW, a bug, and... um, She said from the back of the car, she said, if I were you, I'd be Dr. Yes. And we all laughed. We thought it was so funny because there was a movie out called Dr. Yes. And um, the next day, I had to make reservations in Corvallis for eight people. And the man who answered the phone at the restaurant said, and what's your last name? And I said, yes. And he said, yes. Y-E-S? I said, yes, Y-E-S. And that guy went on a monologue that was, yes, the table will be set for, for eight, and yes, the red carpet will be out for you, and all of that kind of stuff. And indeed it was. In fact, when this party got there, um, the chef came out 
and he delivered all the all the various various food things, and uh, they gave us free wine, and we closed down the restaurant. We talked and talked the whole night, and it was, and so the next day, I went down to the bank and changed my name there, and I mean it's a longer story, but that's probably enough. Um, DMV was the worst because they asked me if I got married, and I said no. <laughs> No, I did not. And um, they said, well, then you can't change your name. And so I said, well, that's not, you know, I could have lied to you. Mm-hmm. I could have said yes. <laughs> and um, they still didn't want to do it. So I then talked to the supervisor and I said, okay, I'll go to another DMV office and lie because this is, this is going to be my name now. So anyway, so that, that whole thing is wrapped into my getting the degree, the PhD at uh, UVO. And it's been fun to be doctor, yes. Although I, I personally don't use it. Um, Katie, the producer of the movie, um, uses it all the time. But as an artist, you don't particularly want to be doctor, yes. <laughs> it's okay. So as an artist, we all have our muse. What inspires your art? Lots of things inspired my art. Um, in, a, in a way, I kind of reflect the society that's around me. Uh, I think the thing for me that got the most notoriety and press and that kind of thing was when I started feminizing stereotypical masculine objects. I mean, in your lifetime, men have worn earrings and that kind of thing. Not in my early lifetime. It would never happen. Like growing up, I mean, I couldn't even play on a basketball team. Not in the state of Minnesota. If I went to Iowa, I could have. And they actually had a tournament for women. Although it might have been half court only back then. I mean, this is just such a dramatic change. So I started looking around and um, using lace as feminine. So I laced military objects because women were not allowed in the military. Um, I did um, football kinds of things. I did just common everyday things that were mostly used by men and not women, and one of them And this one did get the most press, from the Wall Street Journal to Glamour Magazine to the list is long. Um, I had a friend whose husband had a Porsche. And she had to take out the garbage and not the children because they might hurt the car. She also could not drive that car. It was his. Then I noticed that pretty much it was all men who were driving those cars early on. And um, I thought, well, I just need to feminize it. So I asked around. I didn't know which car to buy, and I couldn't afford a new one. I'm a teacher, for goodness sakes. And um, this, this architect said, well, I would go to Mary Webb's Auto Body in Northwest Portland. It's no longer there, but she was in business for quite a while. And Mary helped me greatly. In fact, she looked in the wanted classifieds 
And she found one, and she checked it for rust and for this and that and the other thing. It was in my price range. It was a 1967 911S, which unbeknownst to me was like the hottest car at the time, in that era, 1967. And sure enough, I mean, you know, it made lots of rum, rum, rum sounds and all that kind of stuff. And um, I took it home and um, went to Lewis and Clark and painted it in this little shed off of the football field. And actually, I hired a student and her husband to help me with the airbrushing because I would put lace over the car and then airbrush through it for the stencil. And their last name was Medici. And it gave me great pleasure for an artist to hire the Medicis rather than the other way around historically in Italy. So anyway, um, that took up many, many years of my art making was the feminizing of stereotypical. And, and um, going around and talking about equality. I did lots and lots of talks at um, all kinds of clubs and that kind of thing. That sounds like a common theme with your artwork is that not only do they get something beautiful to see or something beautiful to watch, they also get a lesson with it. Right, or funny to see. I mean, some of it was just odd. And, um, but yeah, and hopefully it made people think, why again? And I uh, got a national endowment for the arts grant um, to study body adornment. And I went to Papua New Guinea where all the women, just like birds, very plain. In fact, uh, for some occasions, they'll just rub mud all over and just be super, super plain. But it was the men who had colorful hats and things on their faces and color everywhere. And uh, so going there and then doing some artwork about why we do what we do. You know, why do I have earrings on today? I still, when I put them on in the morning, is this really what I want to do? I don't do it all that often, but um, I do it consciously, not just to follow the crowd. So speaking of art, when did you start making art? When did you start dabbling in that creative medium? Well, I'll tell you, um, when I was in kindergarten, my kindergarten teacher, Miss Quigg, um, I don't know how she arranged it, but um, she got me the position of showing my drawings to the National Teachers Convention. So I had to go up on stage and they had big, screen with the slides of my artwork and stuff. And um, so I had to talk about the trains and the bear and the, all these different things, cars, things that I drew. So I got patted on the back early on. And in Austin, Minnesota, where I grew up, um, education was really good. They had art specialists in the grade schools. So they'd come a couple times a week and it was, it was excellent. We didn't just do hand turkeys. We did other creative things, and um, it was a very good thing. So I started early, and then in high school, I had an art teacher who was very encouraging 
all the way through until she passed away a number of years ago. But um, lots of support. It sounds like you've had a lot of really amazing mentors. I have. I've been very fortunate. Yeah. So now on to the juicy stuff. What inspired you to start writing your first play, a play that is now going to soon be a movie? I was always interested in theater as well as the visual arts and acted in plays in high school and college. But then I was busy with my painting and so forth. When I taught at Lewis and Clark, 13 different semesters, fall semester, I would take a group of about 20 to 25 students to New York City for three plus months. And we hired a theater professor and we saw a play every single week in New York City. And I sat in on every single class that my students did for 13 times. So theater was pretty ingrained, even though it was latent. So then when I was here in Portland, and I met every Wednesday with a few women who would paint with me, I was trying to take care of my elderly parents back in the Midwest. And I'd fly back and I'd take phone calls from time to time because they were getting sicker and more uh, forgetful and that kind of thing. And um, these women would say, well, what happened this week? And I would tell them, and sometimes they'd laugh because it's not their family. <laughs> sometimes they would just smack their forehead in disbelief. Um, but they were interested, and in part for themselves and what, what they were going to do with their parents and or what they would want their adult children to do with them. And um, then this one person, Dana Corwin, who was taking painting with me at that time, said, well, let's go ahead and make, why don't you make a play? And she said, at McCoy Millwork, where the place that she owns across the river, on a weekend we could build a stage and people could come, we could invite some people. And she even helped me cut and paste different notes that I'd been taking over time. And I took notes in part, when is their next doctor's appointment and what did they say today and how is that going to compare with what they're going to say next week? And so those notes became the play. And then um, I had readings starting here at the kitchen table with uh, some actors and friends, and then at people's living rooms, and then at Lewis and Clark, and then it ended up a reading at Coho Theater. Because frankly, I knew nothing about how to get a play produced. And I didn't want Dana to have to build a stage <laughs> for a weekend. That seemed like a lot of fuss. But anyway, she attended the reading at Coho, and she said, wow, I really think this is a good play. I could be a producer. And I said, oh no, Dana, I just learned last week. You lose money being a producer. A lot of plays lose money. You do it for the love of it, the producing and the acting and everything else. And um, I said, okay, listen, 
I'll be a co-producer with you. If you lose money, I'll lose money, and we'll work on it together. And um, lo and behold, we had a wonderful run at Coho for the month, and we did not lose money. Now, we didn't make much, but we did not lose, so we figured that was a huge success. So I decided to start scholarships at my alma mater, where I did the undergraduate work. And they sent out someone from development office to take me to lunch. Sound familiar? <laughs> We've had tea a few times. <laughs> and and um, so this woman, Katie O'Regan, came, and we went to the chart house for a lovely lunch. And she said to me casually, well, what have you been doing lately? And I said, well, I just had a play that closed um, at a local theater here. And she said, really? I'm an actress and producer. Send me your script. And I had a little background on her. She had moved from New York City back to a farm in Iowa. because, And she was there in Iowa for two years taking care of her sick mother before she passed away. So she really resonated mm -hmm. with this play about end of life and dementia and all that kind of stuff. So she said, okay, well, I'll bet the college back in Iowa would let us use the theater. But guess what? They said no. It was not used in the summertime, but they didn't want people tinkering with stuff and leaving it in bad shape or whatever they thought we would do to it. So then Katie, um, there's this little town, downtown Decorah, Iowa, big old hotel. And the third floor of it was the Steyer Opera House that had not been used for 30 years. And so it didn't have lighting and it didn't have sound and all that kind of stuff. So Katie rented it and put on a dinner theater with the play for several weeks. Great success. And um, something happened, I'm not sure exactly what, a little rift between Katie and a young man who worked at the hotel who wrote a letter to the college president. And they fired her. So there she is without a job. And I won't go into how I thought it was not fair. But anyway, um, because it was not. And so she said, well, I don't have a job anymore. I have nothing to do at the moment. Let's take the play to New York City. So, so in the meantime, between her producing it in Iowa, I had two staged readings, one in my hometown of Austin, Minnesota, at the Paramount Hotel, or not Paramount Theater, where I used to sell popcorn. <laughs> and um, in attendance was a doctor from the Mayo Clinic. Doc, he was um, a geriatric physician. And he talked after the play, saying this was the best thing ever. It, it covered all the bases about what happens with dementia and parents and adult children and the difficulties with siblings and all of that kind of stuff. I am a dysfunctional sibling, <laughs> and that was in full view in the play. And um, anyhow, 
it was very realistic. And he said he would go anywhere the play was produced and do talkbacks afterwards. And so to help families who were dealing with this. So he flew to New York, stayed there for a week, and did these wonderful, wonderful, very helpful talkbacks. And when the play was here in Portland, every night we had a different expert, financial, uh, medical, social workers, all kinds of different things, um, people who could help. And so I would say maybe 25, 30% of the audience would stay for these talkbacks. And Dana and I thought it was like a community service because, I mean, people would go home and they'd change their will or they'd make one or they'd plan for assisted living or, you know, all of these different things. And one high school girl even went home and kind of quizzed her parents. Okay, now, what are you going to want and what's going to be her responsibility and so forth? It was, it was really good. But for Dr. Cor uh, Ingram to, um, and he'll still, he traveled to Caledonia for the film festival and talked to the audience after the reading too. He's a wonderful man. That is so incredible. It sounds like you've created a really wonderful support system throughout this whole Indeed, process. yes. And it, it definitely is a community service that you're doing by also having those resources following the play to really go in detail right. about what it is to make next steps, what it is to assign someone to be in charge of your life, end of life care. And how do that. you get your parents to stop driving when they go to the store for lunch and come back with having two accidents on the way home. I mean, really? And then they say, no, we want to drive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, how do you wrestle those keys out of your parents' hands when they've been driving for 70 years? <laughs> right. Is there anything that you'd like to share about the upcoming movie and um, where it can be seen, actors in it, like, where can we watch Good Morning, Miss America? Well, yes, that's the name of the movie. Same as the play, Good Morning, Miss America. And the title comes from my stepfather um, of 40 years, um, who in the later years, when my mom wasn't doing well at all, he would get her up in the morning and say, Good morning, Miss America. And there she'd be with her hair all rumpled and her teeth out and everything. And she would just beam because she was Miss America to him. And so it has kind of a sentimental uh, meaning. And throughout the play, he calls her Miss America from time to time. And um, anyhow, now it's a movie, or going to be. And Katie is busy fundraising. And her name of her organization is the Sacred Noise Society. And uh, she's got a little place to donate on there, but she needs a lot of money to do an independent movie. So I don't know how far along she is. I, that's something that's uh, in her purview, not mine. But um, we've had some good donations, and I, some that were $5. I don't care. Um, that's a wonderful thing. It's support, and people care, and they love Ed Asner, who is going to play the part of the stepfather. I mean, after the reading in Caledonia, people would come up to him, oh, Ed, I saw you eight years ago, do you remember? 
and you know, uh, they're just enamored that they had contact with him. So there were many, many people who gathered around afterwards to talk with him. Now he's 91, I think he'll be 92 in November. And uh, so we have to pray for good health. The first person I hired uh, for our production in Portland um, got cancer. So he had to drop out of being taking that part. The next one got ALS of all things and also could not do the part. And then so we got a younger, younger person. And I mean, you can put flour in somebody's hair and all that kind of stuff, and they can walk funny uh, like an older person, but um, it's not the same. So I'm just praying for good health for Ed. And so they plan to start filming in October. Mm-hmm. So that's like a month and a half. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And part of it will be here in Portland, uh, some of it in this house in my studio downstairs in the neighborhood, and uh, some will be in a uh, Midwest typical little home with the sofas, with all the pillows and you know all that stuff, and then part of it will be filmed in Los Angeles, and I hope to go down and help with that. Well, I want to tell you one other thing, and that is Ed Asner's daughter, Liza, is playing the part of the sister in the play. So after the reading, there's there's a part in the play where the, the artist from Oregon is trying to get her parents to come out and live near her so she can help them better. And the curmudgeon of a stepfather says, no, we have friends here in the Midwest. And then she says, well, you've got friends in Oregon, too, when you come out in the winter, Um, Peter and Gwen. And then she names another couple. And Liza Asner said to me, is that Peter and Gwen Stone? Yes, they were my next door neighbors. I knew them very well. I used to teach with Peter at Western Oregon University. And um, just the whole small world, this whole thing, it's just seemed like it's meant to be. From her asking me, what have you been doing lately? Her getting fired from her job, her meeting Ed Asner, asking me to send the, the script to him. He and Le- Liza just love the script, so I'm very, very happy. But that's an inside scoop. I was also going to ask, since you just mentioned the artist in Oregon character, how was it trying to figure out who was going to play you? Well, guess what? Katie O'Regan played it in New York City. When she uh, produced the play in Iowa, she hired a New York actress. But um, I think in part because she wanted to do the part herself and in part because of budget, she did it in New York, and she had a wonderful people to play the rest of the cast, and um, she did a good job herself. So she'll be it in the movie. And she and um, Ed Asner's daughter kind of look alike. They could be they could be sisters. Wow, that is amazing. Um, what made you choose the University of Oregon to pursue your PhD? Well, I was kind of forced into it. 
I was teaching at Oregon State University. No, no, no. I applied for the job there, excuse me. And um, it was two-thirds in the art department and one-third in education. I was supposed to coordinate um, student teachers. And uh, the art department voted 100% for me. And then I went over to education, and the dean looked at me and said, well, an MFA might be good enough for the art folks, but you need a PhD in order to be in education. So I made a deal with her that, OK, if I got my PhD in two years, that, um, that you know she would hire me. So she hired me on that basis, which meant I was teaching full-time at Oregon State and driving back and forth to the University of Oregon, which was the clear choice of where I should go. There was just no doubt about it. Um, and, you know, I loved the campus. I loved the professors. And um, Hope Pressman, who for many years I think was in the development office, uh, offered me her basement bedroom. And so that was really, really wonderful. And I just felt invigorated on the campus. And I met some interesting people there, other students and so forth. But the library was fantastic, the art museum. And I took a, I took a class from the person who ran the art museum. And every time uh, he would mention something, he'd say, isn't that OK, Phyllis, or don't you agree with me? <laughs> because I was a professor somewhere else. He kind of um, gave me, I don't know, it wasn't special favors, but he attended to me a little bit more than he should have, I think. Anyway, it was a wonderful experience. And that's when I changed my name, is after I got the PhD. You taught at Lewis and Clark, mm -hmm. as well as, as you mentioned prior, Oregon State University. What is your favorite thing about teaching? Oh, the very favorite thing is, so, you know, I've taught both on the semester system and the quarter system, but I love the semesters because you could take someone who they would joke, I can only draw stick figures and that kind of thing, and you could see their progress at the end of the semester. It was fantastic. And so for that reason, I really liked the beginning classes. I loved the, those that were in the more advanced painting and drawing, too. But you could just see so much progress and so much learning it. I love that. And then I, I like their vitality and youth and everything. I miss it. I was going to say, and then in part, you were a mentor to all those people by giving them that guidance and being able to give them that pat on the back as they're getting better and better. They say I was a tough teacher, but I didn't want art classes. You know, there were all these jokes about basket weaving and all that kind of stuff. I wanted them to take it seriously, as ser if they could take it as seriously as I did, but um, that it wasn't like an easy A and that kind of thing. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Yes, for making time for us today. I'd do most anything for the U of O. Go Ducks. Don't forget to check out the show notes for links and info about how to stay connected to the U of O. Until next time, thanks for listening to The Duck Stops Here.